This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. We are back with cardiology. It is Thursday. Daphne, you're holding up. Daphne is sick, sick of, <laughs> sick, sick, medically sick of cardiology, sick of it all. Yeah, but that's okay. We'll get there. We'll get there. Good sport. Um, okay, so I want to spend a very uh, short amount of time on, um, we're not going to go on the conduction pathway of the heart. This is fairly something that's been tested before um, and we can probably skip that. But let's talk about EKG access because I think that is something that um, we should all be familiar with. So obviously the axis is the position of the heart in relationship to the various leads that we're putting on a patient. And um, we have lead one, two, three, we have AVR, AVL and AVF, right? If you are, um, there's a few ways that you can remember how to put these different leads together, right? So number one is that lead one is a horizontal line that points to your right hand. If most of us are right-handed, you can, that's how I usually remember. The first one goes to my right hand. Then lead number two is actually directly aligned with the apex of the heart, right? And that is the reason why lead two is your rhythm strip because it's perfectly aligned with the depolarization of the heart. So then, uh, so you have lead one to pointing to your right hand, right below you have lead two. And then in the opposite direction, you have lead three pointing down. And these are uh, leads one through three, one through three. And then let's look at the other leads. AVF, I remember is like foot, so it points down. And then you have AVR and AVL, which are pointing up. And unfortunately, AVR is pointing to the left side and AVL is pointing to the right side. So can't help you there. <laughs> um, in terms of what the angles are, lead one points to your right hand horizontally. That's zero, right? If you, if you had, what do you call this thing to measure angles in school? The, the, um, I know how to say it in French. <laughs> oh my God, I just, I just... We probably bought talking. one for your daughter, uh, not a compactor, something like that. Oh, anyway, um, it'll come back. But basically, this is uh, lead one pointing to the right is zero degrees. AVF pointing straight down is 90 degrees. And so between lead one and lead AVF, between zero and 90 degrees, this is your normal axis after one month of age. So right around after the time you are a neonate, this is where your heart is gonna live. Um, but until you're about one month of age, you will have what's known as a right QRS axis deviation, which means that your heart will find itself between 90 degrees and 180 degrees, which means on the other end of, the, of lead one. And that is really because the right ventricle is working so hard that it's sort of shifting the whole structure to the right side. 
Another pathology that will lead to right axis deviation, and is due to the fact that the right ventricle has to work so hard against a stenosed pulmonary valve, is TOF. So TOF will lead to right axis deviation. In terms of left superior axis deviation, which means that now you are between zero and minus 90 degrees. So if, if, you, if you're looking at axis as a form of clock, normal axis is between three o'clock and six o'clock. Right axis deviation is six o'clock to nine o'clock. When we're talking about left superior axis deviation, we're talking of from noon to three, so really up there. And that is um, tricuspid atresia and AV canal defect. Okay? That's all. This is the high yield stuff for. Can I say one thing? What do you think I'm going to say? No. <laughs> I think you think about it in a confusing way. Well, please be my guest. <laughs> Where you are saying you're looking at it from your perspective as a reader at the book. Yeah, not like as, a, as an imager. Correct. I think if you, if people think of it, like we read x-rays. Then AVL is on the left side. That's correct. <laughs> that's correct. AVL is to the patient's left and AVR is to the patient's right. Which actually, and you know what? it and helps you understand where the pathologies deviation. are. Yeah, you're right. Yep. So I actually think there are some books that draw a little person on the axis. And I think that helps you. It explains why AVL is on the left, the patient's left. AVR is on the patient's right. Okay. Okay. Talk to us okay. about SVT. Uh, I, do, I do like SVT, actually. Okay. SVT, superventricular tachycardia. So, um, there are many types of SVT, but it basically means that the impulse is originating supraventricular above the ventricles. It's an umbrella term, as one cardiologist told me one day. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Because, um, and one of the, t the typical kind of pathognomonic things is that this uh, is typically a narrow QRS complex. Mm -hmm. Now, if you see a wide QRS complex, you should potentially treat as if you have VTAC. So that, that takes you to the other mm -hmm. place. Now, in SVT, narrow QRS complex, um, you have uh, increased risk for congenital heart disease seen in Epstein's anomaly, left TGAs. You can see it with medications like caffeine or epinephrine. You can see it in cardiomyopathies, myocarditis, cardiac tumors, fever, and hyperthyroidism. Now, in SVT, especially at the at higher rates, P waves may be difficult to identify. Yeah, they say they get buried inside right. your QRS, so it's hard to see, yeah. So how do you decide if it's SVT or sinus tachycardia or ventricular tachycardia? So in the neonatal SVT, the rate is typically in this 220 to 330 rate. It's mm -hmm. fast. And it's usually greater than 250 in preterm infants who already have a higher baseline heart rate. Mm 
There's little variation in the rate and it begins and ends abruptly. You have an abnormal P wave axis and you may have an absent P wave in up to 40%. So the P wave is a big, big finding or the absence of a P wave is a big finding. You may have a normal QRS wave in greater than 90%. We'll talk about uh, QRSs in a second. And there is a pathology. 3% of patients have a wide complex SVT. We're just going to leave that out to the side. <laughs> now, prolonged SVT can lead to congestive heart failure. This is different than sinus tachycardia in the neonate where the rate is usually less than 230, but it can still be impressive, 200, 220. I mean, that's the range. That's the range where we all get freaked out, right? You have a kid that's, that's right. like 205. Once you're over 200. Yeah. 205, <laughs> and you're like, man, is this SVT or is this just sinus tax? So That's man. it. But you may, you would expect variability in the rate. Um, this may also, uh, it does not tend to begin and end as abruptly as SVT. So it, it begins and ends slowly. Like you may do some other interventions, volume resuscitation, uh, looking at the temperature, and, and eventually see an improvement. You have a normal P wave access. You should see P waves um, in front of all of the QRSs. You have a normal QRS. And of course, it's associated with anemia, hypovolemia, shock, fever, and medications like epinephrine, dopamine, isoproteranol, and aminophylline. Now, what about the neonatal ventricular tachycardias? Those rates tend to be in the 120 to 210 range. You have a wide QRS, and the P wave may or may not be dis dissociated from the QRS complex. It's associated with congenital heart disease, electrolyte abnormalities, myocarditis, hypoxemia, digoxin toxicity, and shock. And the ventricular tachycardias have a greater risk for cardiovascular collapse than the supraventricular tachycardia. But I told you, prolonged SVTs can lead to congestive heart failure. Now, there's a special type of SVT, Wolf-Parkinson-White, which we, we all kind of remember. Um, and the hallmark feature of the Wolf-Parkinson-White on EKG is the presence of a delta wave. So you have your P um, and you have a shortened PR interval and you have a slurring of the QRS. Yeah, so from so, the end of your P wave to the to your R, it's basically a slope going up. Yeah, an, a nice uh, slope. And this happens because the ventricular myocardium is activated early. So instead of getting your P, waiting a little bit, and then starting the QRS complex, you get the P and you already get the myocardial kind of depolarization. So that's where that slope comes from. So you have a prolonged QRS, you have a shortened PR interval, and the slurring of the QRS or the delta wave to identify Wolf-Parkinson-White or type of SVT on EKG. Um, this is secondary to an electrical pathway between the atrium and the ventricle that bypasses the AV node. And so this is much faster than traveling through the AV node. Yeah, the AV node is supposed to slow down. Slow you down. Yeah, yeah. and that's now lost, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like a the speed bump. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so Wolf Parkinson White can be associated with Epstein's anomaly, with LTGA, although it is most commonly found in patients with a structurally normal heart. 
So the management of SVT in the short term is really looking at the patient. So if the first thing to do is one, determine is this SVT or sinus tachycardia. You can't always know for sure. Two, assess if your patient is hemodynamically stable. If your patient is stable, you would attempt vagal maneuvers. We can do this with like ice water to the face. <coughs> Sorry, you can trial adenosine IV if there's no change. Now, if you have an unstable patient, this is not the time to be using vagal maneuvers unless you're doing them while you're waiting for somebody to bring you the AED. In SVT, we use synchronized uh, cardioversion. We use 0.5 to 2 joules per kilogram. It's ideal if you can synchronize to the peak of the R wave. Um, but you remember, in SVT, you use synchronized cardioversion. Um, after the SVT is resolved, you want to look at the EKG and determine if there's some sort of underlying abnormal rhythm. The machine synchronizes for us. I've never had to synchronize. Yeah, we don't, we don't pick the R wave. App. Press yeah. the button and it just That's gives right. you the little dots and then you're like, all right, it's synchronized. Right. At this point, we're not deciding when. You were saying it so in such know. a casual manner. I'm like, has she ever synchronized a freaking thing to the yeah. R wave? The Does machine finds, the, 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 machine finds the peak of the R wave and it sinks. Okay. okay. All right. You're right. Um, okay. All right. Let's keep going to some of these other um, arrhythmias. So the first one we're going to talk about is the flutter. Flutter is one that is often tested, I think, because it has a very interesting approach. Now, in flutter, you go super fast. Heart rate is 300. And because, to, and because it's terrifying. It's terrifying. It's easy to identify. And the management is pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. um, it was very tested in pediatrics as well. Yep. Yeah. Um, so the rate is 300 to 500 beats per minute. It goes very fast. It has this very prototypical sawtooth appearance of the um, of the P wave, right? Where it slopes up and comes right back down. And uh, it's really best. Can I tell you how I remember? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I was a swimmer growing up. And so when I think of... <laughs> atrial flutter like the flutter kick right okay that's your feet do, 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 do. and and the the upbeat here the qrs is is like the arm stroke okay but you're kicking fast you're flutter kicking do, 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 do. and every once in a while you get your arm strokes in but those those uh the kicking is oh that's a much you're talking rate. oh you're talking about the the atrial to ventricular conduction correct okay we right. haven't gotten there but okay <laughs> You talked about the sawtooth pattern. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So the sawtooth pattern is usually seen in lead 2, 3 AVF and V1, and the QRS are usually normal. Now, because, as we said, the um, AV node is supposed to block some of these um, conductions, you cannot get a scenario in which all these atrial impulses are conducted. So they'll, they'll conduct a ventricular, they'll conduct a QRS once in a while, and so the RR interval can be can be variable depending on when that's transmitted. It like uh, SVT, it starts and ends suddenly. Now it is difficult to distinguish from SVT, um, and sometimes it's helpful to slow down these infants to try to get to see um, the, the the flutter, but. Um, 
it's usually a pathology that's well tolerated if you have a, a, a good job being done by the AV node to, uh, to, to block these impulses and that you have a normal ventricular rate. However, if you have a scenario in which you have a one-to-one -one conduction through the AV node, meaning everything is going through, you'll have very poor cardiac output. Your heart does not have time to do its job and the patient will be quite sick. And then the question becomes, is, are you dealing with a patient that has a flutter and that is stable or that is unstable? And I think that's where it gets very tricky. If you have a patient that is unstable, you need to do um, DC synchronized cardioversion or esophageal pacing followed by antiarrhythmic. But basically, you need to shock these kids if they're unstable. If they are stable, you need to block the atrial response, usually with digoxin and the ventricular rate with some other antiarrhythmic. And if, if the ventricular rate is not blocked, it can cause uh, an acute increase in the ventricular rate. Now, if there's no underlying ideology, if there's really nothing really at the root cause of this, prognosis is good, recurrence is unlikely. So digoxin with some antiarrhythmic, and then you shock them DC synchronized cardioversion like an SVT if they are unstable. Let's talk about atrial fibrillation. Um, basically, atrial fibrillation means that you have multiple foci of uh, in the atrium that lead to uh, that lead to reentry site and irregular atrial waves. You have an abnormal atrial rates of 350 to 600 beats per minute. The QRS complex is predominantly normal, but you will notice the RR interval that is not uh, consistent. And that's really a hallmark of AFib. Um, you'll have rapid ventricular response or, um, and then, or a slow ventricular response. These are the two forms I think that you can see. And this needs to be, see this needs to be treated with um, DC defibrillation and uh, digoxin to slow the ventricular rate down. A few more, um, a few more, uh, a few more arrhythmias. Ventricular tachycardia, we spoke about it. This is three or more consecutive PVCs at 120 to 200 uh, beat per minute. You have widened QRS uh, complexes. You can have inverted T waves, and you may have ventricular to atrial dissociation. Ventricular tachycardia is something that we don't see rarely, that we don't see commonly in neonates. The rhythm really arises from the bundle of hiss. Neonates may present with CHF or cardiac arrest, and the ideologies include congenital heart disease, electrolyte abnormalities, hypoxemia, myocarditis, uh, cardiac tumors, digoxin toxicity, prolonged QV syndrome, cardiomyopathy. Most often, it's idiopathic and self-resolving. If you have a stable patient, you can give them amiodarone, lidocaine, or a beta blocker. If they're unstable, they need DC cardioversion. What about VFib? VFib is not to be confused with VTAC. VFib is an abnormal QRS complex with a rapid and irregular rate. Kind of looks like a kid is scribbling uh, a cardiac rhythm. The etiologies include congenital heart disease, prolonged hypoxia, right? The baby that's acidotic for a while that eventually codes is usually suffering from VFib hyperkalemia, myocarditis, medications, cardiomyopathy, and cardiac tumor. This is something that needs to be shocked, DC defibrillation, no synchronization. You can give them lidocaine or amiodarone for, um, for that as well. Um, should we talk a little bit about the medications before we wrap up? 
Oh, I thought you were gonna. We were gonna finish with prolonged QT. Um, we can talk about prolonged QT. Um, really, prolonged QT is uh, something that results from abnormality of the ventricular repolarization, leading to a QT corrected segment of more than four hundred and fifty milliseconds in neonates. Uh, note that the authors are mentioning that four hundred and ninety milliseconds may be normal up to the age six months, but warrants follow up. Um, the etiologies of a prolonged QT can be hypocalcemia, myocarditis, long QT syndrome. Um, there's increases the risk of ventricular tachyarrhythmia, most notably torsade. Um, it has been associated with sudden infant death syndrome and treat with antiarrhythmic medication like propanolol should be first line, and it may require a pacemaker. I think a typical uh, question that could be asked for uh, prolonged QT is a baby that has this at baseline and the typical medication that can actually induce you to go into torsan is like azithromycin, right? So if you give a macrolide on a patient that has prolonged QT, you can lead to torsad and then that is, uh, that is the, uh, that it could be the, the presentation that they could give you on the, on the test, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk about some of these medications. I don't know if we're gonna have time for a question today, but we'll just go quickly. Um, so we spoke about adenosine, right? Adenosine is the medication that we use a lot in SVT. Basically, the point of adenosine is that it transiently blocks the AV node and can interrupt the AV node limb of re-entry. It can also help the diagnosis of SVT, and it can unmask an atrial flutter. It's a short-term therapy with a very short half-life of about 10 seconds. It's administered via a rapid IV bolus, and it may need higher doses if the patient is receiving caffeine. The one thing you do have to um, keep an eye on, obviously, is um, you have to check the EKG, make sure the rhythm changes, um, but it can lead to hypotension due to vasodilation, so you need to assess blood pressure, administration, blood pressure during the administration, and you have to look out for bronchoconstriction or wheezing, so uh, have your albuterol ready by the bedside. Amiodarone is a potassium channel blocker, and basically it slows the conduction down, right? And amiodarone is something you'll give a lot in those patients with SVT because you may shock them, but like if you don't control their rate once they're back into rhythm, then um, then that's a problem. It has a long high It has a long half life. It's helpful in SVT and VT that do not respond to adenosine. And again, there's something where you should check the liver function test uh, before and uh, every six months. Um, digoxin is a medication that provides some AV block um, and, um, and that we use uh, in a few of these uh, arrhythmias. We talk about propanolol, again, a bit of blocker that is used if you have uh, adenosine-responsive uh, tachycardia. It's the first-line treatment for Wolf-Parkinson-White, um, and it, has, uh, it can be used as a potential long-term therapy. You have to monitor glucose concentration when you initiate. There's others, you can take a look at them. And, um, but I think we covered what was probably the most high yield, don't you think, Daphne? I think so. Cool. Good work, buddy. All right, we'll see you guys tomorrow. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.
This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.